0: just want to say I want to start off this morning it's not a good way to start a sermon by crying but the lord is at work we love you guys so much it's incredible how much we feel loved by this church and we in the elders here and you guys have poured out your love on us and we feel Christ's love from you um, the ways that people have just told me even today how many people have been praying for us praying for housing praying for our kids even praying for me to preach this very sermon. Thank you. Seriously, thank you. We love you guys. We love Heritage Baptist Church. Um, honestly, just to be transparent, <clears throat> my voice is shaky, I'm sorry. Music was great today, guys. Worship team has done an excellent job. Excellent job. Um, this passage today that we're going to look at in Romans 14 and 15 it's wrecked me over and over again as I've tried to prepare this message and work through the text. There's just so many applications. So It's just far-reaching, the, 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 the influence and the application of this text. They're endless. I'm not exactly sure why Pastor Mark uh, thought I would be a candidate to preach this particular text today. I'm not sure. It's, it's, I mean, the, the focus is a ministry that pleases God. I'm not sure if he believes that I have a ministry that I'm doing well at pleasing the Lord in, or if he, he might think I have significant room to grow. I'll, I'll go with the latter on, on that fact. Um, but we're, we're concluding this, this series on, on pleasing God that we began a couple months ago as a church. Um, and today's focus is a ministry that pleases God, navigating the biblical tension between pleasing God and pleasing man. It might raise some eyebrows in the church to think about the juxtaposition of those words in the way that we would think about this usually is like, should we ever please man? <laughs> you know, is there, is there ever a point in which pleasing people is, is right for us to do? We often make it sound like, like pleasing men and pleasing God are opposites. But really, if we think about it, if we're looking at it like a horse, riding the horse We often put pleasing God as riding that horse one ditch or falling off of one side would be pleasing man. And we we talk about falling off the other side. Actually, the opposite of pleasing man would be pleasing others. Scripture we just read, our brother Larry just read from Romans 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. It's clear here that we are not to please ourselves. Paul makes the distinction, but in contrast, Paul encourages us to please others. In contrast to pleasing ourselves, so with this mind, pleasing others is perhaps not quite the other side of of, of the other side of the horse that we're metaphorically talking about. Paul paints pleasing others as in a in a positive light here, contrary to the way I, I, I grew up thinking about it. Listen to 1 Corinthians 10.33. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many that they may be saved. What in the world is Paul saying here? I try to please everyone in everything I do. He very directly makes a contrast here between not pleasing ourselves, encourages us to please others. To add more confusion here a little bit to to the thought and trying to pull this, this ball of yarn apart. Look at some other texts we just read. One of them is Galatians 1.10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And what about, Second Thess- or what about First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4? But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul clearly makes a distinction here between pleasing God and pleasing others. So really there are three options as I see it right here. There's pleasing self, pleasing others, and pleasing God. Of these three, Paul seems to explicitly condemn pleasing ourselves, but he encourages us to please God and to please others. But I don't understand which is right. How can we do both of those things? There's a real tension between pleasing God and pleasing others that we can see in the text, and we must not just brush it off. For some of us, the temptation is to just say, of course, we make it our aim to please God in everything. And these types of people, sometimes just stubbornly and pridefully stand in the way of all others that try to make them bend or encroach on their, on their convictions or their freedoms and their rights. We must primarily and first of all make it our aim to please God. Yes, this is true. But we as Americans, listen, we talk so much about our rights and our freedoms, don't we? We, we? we care more about what is legal or our privileges than we think about what is loving and charitable and kind. We hammer more about what is owed to us than we hammer on the very glory of God. Can we not suffer wrong for the sake of the gospel? Can we not risk loss of our pride for the glory of God? Now, on the other side of this, there are others of us, the temptation is just to say, well, I'm just going to love my neighbors. That's that's clearly God's command. I'm going to pursue unity and peace and everything. That's what God has told us to do. This tension doesn't matter. Love does. But these kinds of people often bend and flex on anything to keep people happy with them and and between others their their instinct is the flight instinct more than it is the fight instinct yes we must love our neighbors but is it really loving to let our neighbors stay in their sin many americans talk so much about coexisting let me be me and you be you or rodney king's famous words can't we all just get along but people never really actually want to deal with the problems, to do the hard work, to resolve the argument or the tension. They'd rather run away from it. We want to be united as churches, but united in what? Around what? If, if we are standing on something immovable, sure, and stable, if we are not standing on something immovable, sure, and stable, we won't stand at all. Is God's word not worth fighting for? Is he not worthy of our obedience in our complete allegiance. So how do we deal with this tension? Pleasing God and pleasing others. Jess and I have had many struggles over this last seven years, um, over unity and peace and cooperation with other cross-cultural workers, other Christians working overseas like us. In In the last term, we've cried, we have pleaded with the Lord, we've wanted to come back to the United States just to escape the reality and the struggles that we 've had we 've pleaded with others and with the Lord for faithfulness to His word for unity around His word and peace between one another. I mean think about this just for a second, give you an example we couldn 't even move forward on covenanting together as a church in a common confession for two full years we couldn 't agree on the mode of teaching and preaching in, our, in, in the church that we were trying to to establish with other workers like us in the city that we Lived in. Some of us didn't know really what we wanted, but we were very sure of what we did not want. It made for a lot of fun discussions. Here, here's another example of this tension, how it's come up in our own ministry overseas. Okay? So, it just happened a few years ago. A former Muslim brother, now brother in Christ by the grace of God in North Africa, he, he finds a Bible on a stand in a bathroom of a sister in Christ, um, and, and she's an American, okay? So he comes to me complaining at her low view of God's word, and and basically her her he's appalled at how he how she would um, disregard the very character of God well, by putting this Bible in her in her bathroom. This was just one of the many struggles that they had already had because of misunderstandings between one another. Okay. Um, His understanding of the bathroom, you've got to get this, is an unholy and it's unclean place. And God's word should not be there. God's holy word should not be defiled or publicly seen in a toilet. Not just for him, he was concerned, not just for other believers, but for unbelievers coming to visit her house that might use the restroom, find this Bible in the bathroom, and think she's probably wiping her you-know-what with the pages. Okay, so this is his view. He's coming to me complaining and listen to her side. He sees she sees this brother as possibly idolatrous in his view of the Bible, because the way that he handles the Bible is he puts it on the highest place in his house. He kisses it every time he handles it, handles it. Anytime he passes it off to somebody, he's saying a blessing. So she's disregarding him. He's judging her. But Who's right here? How do we mediate such conflicts between believers? Both want to glorify God. Both are trying to do what's right. I just want to let you see, in the midst of this one example, we have struggled with hard times and wrestled over many issues within this tension of pleasing God and pleasing others. I'm sure that we have all, as we sought to be faithful in our own lives, and our own ministries, have struggled with this very tension. Pleasing God and pleasing others. We want ministries that are pleasing to the Lord. This is what we're going to look at together today in Romans 14. We're going to dive in to find these answers. But first, before we do, let me pray. Let me pray for us. Father, we really, really need to have your word penetrate our hearts today. Will you captivate us by your word? Will you hold our minds in focus here on Romans chapter 14 and 15? Will you help us, help break down for us and show us how to submit to your word and to you and to not go beyond what is written. Help us to see the depth and the breadth of the gospel at work in the lives, in our lives through Jesus, our Lord and Savior. I am your servant, Lord Jesus. Speak through me to your people today. Amen. Okay, so here's the big idea. In Romans 14, in, in, in the first seven verses of uh, 15, we are called in Christ to make it our aim to please God always. There's not an exception. That's why the always is in there. We are called in Christ to make it our aim to please God always by, this is a key word, by sometimes laying aside our freedoms and privileges in order to please others. By sometimes laying aside our freedoms and privileges in order to please others. So for you note takers, that's that's the title, that's the focus of this, this sermon. This is a ministry that both both to believers and to the lost that's pleasing to God. In the book of Romans, this this is the most clear and complete picture of the gospel in a single letter of the New Testament that we have. For many, it's the single most important book of the whole Bible. Paul, never having been to Rome, at the point of writing this letter, he has several aims here. One, he wants to encourage the church in Rome. Two, he talks about his his wanting to visit the church in Rome and acquire money to go on to Spain, a place where the gospel had not been, so he wouldn't build on anyone else's foundation. And he wants to present to them his gospel, as he calls it, that was handed down to him directly from the Lord Jesus. As in many epistles, Paul, in the book of Romans... He has moved from explaining the indicatives to the latter part explaining the imperatives. And so the indicatives are truths about God and man and our sinful state and Christ and his eternal work and the satisfaction of God's wrath, our state in the spirit and our union with Christ and justification and sanctification and the certainty of our glorification. All of these beautiful truths are explained thoroughly throughout the first 12 chapters of Romans. And then in, in 12, we see this, this change take place where he focuses then on the, the imperatives. In other words, now that you are saved from God's wrath in Christ, here's what you were saved for in Christ. One might say, these are instructions for kingdom living in this glorious gospel of our blessed God. In Romans chapter 14, is a culmination of the outworking of the gospel in the believer's life. Think about it that way. I, I tell you this because I want to I frame up Romans 14 for us. As we think about reading this, it's not just a list of commands but is, it is an outworking of the gospel in the believer's life. In this, in this chapter, Paul both explains generally the application of the gospel in the life of all believers, but at the same time, it appears that Paul seems to be handling a specific issue in the church in Rome between who he calls the strong and the weak. What does Paul mean by the strong and the weak? The weak are those who are stricter in their view, and disciplined in keeping various rules and regulations because of their convictions from Scripture about participating in idol worship. Likely, these were, these were Jews that became Christians and were probably in the minority membership in the church in Rome. These are, the, these are what Paul calls the weak. Okay, The strong in this passage are freer Christians who do not feel consciously bound not to eat the meat, or to participate in the, the certain cultural or religious practices because of their understanding of their freedom that they have in Christ who fulfilled the law. This is a strong. So Paul, mostly in chapter 14, talks about issues that revolve around food, sacrifice to idols, drinking wine that is likely from idol temples, and participating in holidays that are connected with, with pagan religions. And sadly, in this this chapter, it seems that the freer Christians, a.k.a. the strong, are using their liberty in Christ to look down on those who are stricter in conscience, to crush their convictions under their freedom. And the weak in faith, who are bound in their conscience to the the ways that they were interpreting Scripture, were judging and condemning the strong for participating in such idle worship, in such idle activities. What do you do? How do you encourage a church like this? What do you say to a church like this? Well, Romans 14 and 15 has a lot to say. I, wanna, I want you to go ahead and open up if you haven't opened up there because what we'll, what we'll do is we'll work through this verse by verse. It's such a long section. I'm not going to read it before and we'll read it as we go. Before we go forward, though, I want to clarify one thing as we look at this text, as we look and think about applications, helpful distinctions and doctrines, uh, because this is really important for us. Paul is not talking about our first-tier issues and possibly not even second-tier issues um, in regards to the weak and strong Christians, but he's talking about differences in uh, third and fourth-tier issues. What do do we mean by first, second, third, and fourth-tier issues? What What does that even mean? Gavin Ortlund, in his book uh, *Finding the Right Hills to Die On*, he defines them this way: First rank doctrines are essential to the gospel itself. Second rank doctrines are urgent for the health and practice of the church, such that they frequently cause Christians to separate at the level of local church, denomination, and ministry. Third rank doctrines doctrines are important to Christian theology, but not enough to justify separations or divisions among Christians. In other words, first first tier issues are things like the Trinity, the nature of Christ, the integrity and the inspiration of the Word of God. These are these are first rank or first tier. Second tier issues are things like the mode of baptism or church polity or God's sovereignty and salvation. The third, third tier issues are doctrines like the millennium, days of creation, the role of women. Um, fourth tier issues are things like alcohol, schooling decisions, dress and other matters. So, in Romans 14 and 15, Paul is focusing his attention here on what we would call those third and fourth tier issues. Paul is not saying that first and second, even second tier issues are just up for discussion or debate. And you can believe whatever you, you, you want here. On the contrary, Paul fought tooth and nail with believer and unbeliever about, uh, uh, unbeliever about issues in the gospel issue, first tier. Okay, so don't, don't think that you can apply this to just any area of doctrine. There are rankings, there are areas. I think third and fourth. Paul in Romans 14:15, he's he's talking about issues of conscience and preference. Issues that we need to have categories for that we can differ on and still love our brother and sister and have fellowship in the same church. We must have contours in our theology so as not to heighten all doctrines to hills that we should die on nor to flatten all of our theology and doctrines so as to have nothing worth fighting for. That's not what Paul is arguing here. He, he, is, he is focusing his attention on third and fourth rank. So today, be careful to keep your applications bounded as we listen to the principles as we read this text. Keep them bounded to third and fourth tier doctrinal matters in areas of practice. This section is, is rather sizable. I've pulled out ten principles from, from um, what, church, what Paul is guiding the church in Rome to do. Ten principles that will change the way we think, love, and fight with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ in the same church. I say that in a good way. I hope that fight word doesn't upset you, but we do fight with one another as brothers and sisters, don't we? Many of these principles come from a book by Andy Niselli and J.D. Crowley called Conscience. If you haven't read this book or you're interested in understanding more about the subject of conscience or Christian liberty, I would encourage anyone in this room to read it. It's a great book. But I've placed these ten principles under three headings for simplicity's sake. So so those of you that have the bulletin this morning, the three headings are there. Romans fourteen, one through twelve, take time to understand one another. First heading. Romans fourteen, thirteen through twenty-three. Be humble as you live together in understanding. And then the last one, all these ten principles will go under these three. The last one is fifteen. Uh, chapter 15, 1 through 6, serve others as Christ did for us. The 10 principles will be subpoints under these headings, just for simplicity's sake to help you think through and group these. That's the way I did it. So let's dive right in. Hope you're all uh, there at Romans chapter 14. Number one, first principle, take time to understand one another by welcoming those who disagree with you. Take time to understand one another by welcoming those who disagree with you. Verse 1 and 2. As for the one who is... Or, sorry. Accept one another. um, Accept anyone who is weak in faith, but don't argue about disputed matters. One person believes he may eat anything, while the other, who is weak, eats only vegetables. It appears... That the church in Rome, as I've already said, was primarily made up of freer, or the, the strong in faith believer, who felt the freedom around the issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols. Notice the address of Paul that he makes here. He's, he's pri- is primarily to the stronger Christian. Okay? He, not to exclude the weaker or the stricter in faith. Paul says to him, what? Verse 1. Welcome him. Welcome him. I am sure that by now, many of us here in this room have probably already put ourselves on one side or the other. As you think about stronger or weaker, we, 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 we want to put ourselves in one of those spots. But honestly, we can be on either side of, of stronger or weaker depending on the doctrine, depending on the issue, depending on the subject matter. Um, strict on one subject, freer on another. There are some of us, for an example, who might drink alcohol. Some of us might not. There are some of us who would send your kids to public school. There are some of us that might not. There are some of us who might watch a horror film. (laughs) There are others of us who might not. We have convictions. We have preferences about those things. Some of us hold quite strongly to them. Other issues might be like, that's really uh, an issue for our day, is wearing masks or not, social distancing or not, quarantining or not. Um, the, 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 the issues are numerous and, and they, they go on and the members of this very church might land on different sides of any number of those things. But what does God say here? What does Paul tell the church? He says, God calls us to welcome those with whom we disagree on issues like this. Welcome those in whom you disagree on issues like this. Number two, when you've taken the time To understand one another, you who have freedom of conscience must not look down on those who don't. And you whose conscience restricts you must not be judgmental towards those who have freedom. Verse 3 and 4. Let's continue. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. For the strong in faith among us, it's our temptation often to look down or to disregard those who have different convictions than us who are stricter in their own convictions than ours. Uh, We like to throw around this word a lot, Pharisee, Pharisaical, or legalist, Right? That's what we say to one another or about one another when people differ from us in, in areas like this, don't we? But it's, it's this attitude of, of superiority that Paul condemns for the strong. On the other side of this, it's often our temptation for those of us who are weaker in conscience or are stricter in rule to just set in judgment over those, those antinomian, licentious, heathen sinners, Right? I'm joking, but that's the way we talk about each other. That's the way we say things of our sister and brother in Christ. Do you find yourself looking down on other servants of the Lord whose convictions are different or whose interpretations of particular passages differ from you? Are you judging other servants of Christ that are not as serious or hardline or as strict as you are? Paul says that it is before his own master that he stands or falls. In our first term, in a, in, a, in a Muslim context, that's semi-hostile to Americans in general, but specifically to Christians, um, our ladies had made a, a, a cultural decision uh, of practice that they would dress similarly to the other women, but they weren't going to wear the hijab, the head covering. Because they felt that to wear the head covering is to identify yourself as a Muslim woman. That's what it meant. In the context that we lived, it meant you're a Muslim woman. So they weren't going to wear the head covering. Well, there was another team in another country that had to flee because of civil war, and they joined our team to become a part of what we were doing there. But that team, and the girls on their team had decided that they were going to dress in every way like Muslim women because their, their view was they did not want to have their head uncovered because the Muslim men's view is that hair is erotic. Hair is a sensual thing. So they didn't want to have any issues in causing those men to think otherwise or think things differently about who they were in character. Now, as you might imagine, it it was a little awkward when the ladies got together or when we were out in community because the distinctions are clearly different just looking at them. And often, the ladies on our team sort of felt a little bit judged by the ladies on the other team. It It was just... Strange navigating even the differences in dress. And the temptation was to disregard the other team's convictions and our team's girls. Like I said, they just they felt a little judged by, by the, the, the team as if we weren't as serious or that our girls weren't as serious as theirs about reaching this people group. We must not disregard one another who abstains or pass judgment on one another who participates. Examine your hearts and see if there's a critical spirit or a dishonorable spirit in you. Number three, third principle. Take time to understand one another and be fully convinced of your position in your own conscience. Be fully convinced of your position in your own conscience. Verse five. One person esteems one day better than another while another person esteems all days alike Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. It's so important to understand the Christian conscience here. Two rules, really, that that go around Christian conscience. First of all, God gave us a conscience. And we must submit ourselves to the Lord of our consciences. God gave us a conscience and we must submit submit ourselves to the Lord of our consciences. If it is God who is our master and his word is our authority, then we must shape our consciences by them. We must read his word, understand his word, and live by his word. Submit yourself to the Lord of your conscience. Second rule of Christian conscience. We must obey our consciences on any given issue. You don't want to go continually offending or potentially searing your own conscience because you keep doing what you feel like is wrong you continue to disregard it, you will not end up in a good place. Apart from the intervening grace of God, we have the ability to sear our consciences if we go on doing what we believe is wrong in our minds. Now, for clarity's sake, I don't want you to hear me saying that your conscience is always right. I like Jiminy Cricket. I like his song. But you can't always let your conscience be your guide. Okay? No one's conscience is 100% in line with God's word. With God's standards. And that means that no two Christians have exactly the same convictions on everything, on every issue. It's wise to calibrate and to train our conscience according to what is written in God's word. We don't want to be like Pharisees and have all the extra laws that we make up from keeping ourselves from breaking God's law and then impose those laws of our own making on others. We don't want to do that. And on the other hand, we also don't want to absolve ourselves from all laws in God's Word simply because we we hold to our positional righteousness in union with Christ as sufficient and feel no need for personal holiness or godliness. Both of those would be the wrong way to go. But instead, train your conscience by God's Word. But while you do it, don't do things that continually offend your conscience. You will not be a healthy Christian. Be fully convinced of whatever the issue is according to what you understand from God's word and live according to that conviction. Principle number four. Take the time to understand one another and assume that others are making their decision for the glory of God. Assume that others are making their decision for the glory of God. Verse six through nine. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we are the Lord's. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. Notice here how Paul handles the different sides of the issues. His basic assumption, it's so contrary to the way that we naturally think and act. Listen, listen to what he says. His basic assumption here is that each person has thought carefully about the decision that they're making and that their aim is for the glory of God, that they're doing what they're doing for the glory of God. He says, the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord and the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord. But think about how often we deal with others on issues like this instead of giving them the benefit of the doubt. What do we do? We are usually painting them in the worst possible light for the decisions that they've made. We're painting people out to be evil in their motives, enemies to us. We're the victim or the hero, however you want to look at it. But we do that, don't we? That's our natural tendency. We might say things like those fundamental monkey suit wearing Baptists who won't come to our dance because they think we're worshiping the devil. Or on the other side, we might say those idolatrous sinners casting the gospel before swine. You know, it's just, I I kid. But we do say stupid and ridiculous stuff like that about other blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ. Whatever we do, let's do it all for the glory of God. And let's assume that our brothers and sisters are doing the same. Principle number five. Take the time to understand one another and know that someday, someday we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Therefore, do not judge one another on these matters. Someday we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Therefore, do not judge each other on these matters. Verse 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I, li- as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of God, uh, of himself to God. Paul speaks to both sides here. The free in faith whose tendency is to despise the strict and the, and the stricter in faith whose tendency is to judge The strong. God is judge. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. All will stand before him one day, for every word, every thought, every act will be displayed to onlookers in this awe filled, in this terrible day. Everything done in darkness will be brought out into the light. We should spend a little bit more time thinking about the judgment seat of Christ when we are tempted to judge. By our own standards, those who are co-heirs with us of Christ Jesus. Every mouth will be stopped before his throne one day. Now, don't, don't hear me saying that. Doesn't mean that we don't speak into one another's lives from God's word to help correct, encourage, rebuke, reprove one another in walking in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ Jesus. Doesn't mean that we, we don't tell one another when we have mustard on our face than when we have bats in the cave. We speak to one another in love. What does Ephesians say? That's how the church is built up. That's how we grow into maturity. We should desire to have people like this in our lives who point out these things. That's, That's not what I'm saying here. But remember, God is judge. We will be judged by his word, not ours. Don't go beyond what is written. Which leads to our second heading, our second umbrella in this, in these uh, principles, in the second set of principles. Um, Be humble as you live together in understanding. Four, number six, your freedom may be correct, but don't let your freedom destroy the faith of the weak brother or sister. Your freedom, you have freedom in Christ, but don't let your freedom be used to destroy your brother or sister. Verse 13 through 15. with who's right and who's wrong in this. Did you hear him? He says, I know and I am persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself. He actually sides with the stronger and freer believers in this argument. But he doesn't say, he doesn't say, we are right, you are wrong. If you don't do this, you are in sin. He doesn't say that to the weaker Brothers and sisters, Paul is not concerned about who is right and who's wrong in this case. He doesn't give a new law here. But what is he concerned about? He's concerned about walking in love. According to Paul here, all Christians have a responsibility to care for and have concern for one another's well-being. The bulk of the responsibility falls on the stronger, freer brothers or sisters in faith. God calls these brothers and sisters to bear with the weaknesses of the weak that's what he'll say in 15.1. These Christians are actually the only ones with a choice here, the stronger. Think about it. Weaker or stricter Christians must not disobey their consciences. That was one of the rules of conscience, right? Don't, and, and they should not eat then the meat from idle temples. Because in their conscience, that would be sin for them. But the stronger brother has a choice. He can choose to eat or not to eat. His conscience affords him that freedom. The strong have the freedom to eat based on their convictions, that all things are clean, but they also have a responsibility not to use their liberty to offend their brothers and sisters, but serve them. This is a great privilege for those who are strong. This is a huge responsibility. In in recent days, there's been this dialogue from... Our brothers at, at, at Grace to You, which is MacArthur's church, and, and between nine marks, uh, particularly Jonathan Lehman, about gathering, all agree that we should gather. All agree that we must submit to the Lord's word and be faithful to his command not to forsake gathering together. That's not the issue in this. But there has been an issue that's come up where the, the Grace to You elders have sort of, it seems, laid down, at least early on, laid down a, a, a clear line that we need to be gathering the way that we were gathering exactly before pre-COVID and and, and issuing how that gathering should look. And anybody who's not doing that is unfaithful to Christ is what it was presented like initially. Whereas the non-Marx is arguing that gathering is essential, but how we do it is really an issue of preference and, and, and opinion here. It's an issue of conscience. And they were arguing from 9 Marks to be careful not to bind the consciences of others by making it so, so black and white that, that those others are just in sin if they don't do it like you're doing. 9 Marks seems to be, be in this case, the, the stronger or the freer in faith Christians on this issue of trying to promote more Christian liberty so as not to cause others to sin by forcing them to break their conscience um, or judge or worse, Separate from others who don't join them on how they express this particular command. Being a servant to others in the disagreement is not the easiest route. But it is walking in love. Your convictions and the convictions of your brothers and sisters, they matter. It's not about who's right and who's wrong. And don't write off the convictions of others as just foolishness or unimportant most of all, be careful to, to not to use your freedom in ways that cause others to stumble, to sin. Principle number seven in this text. Be humble as you live together in understanding because eating and drinking and matters like these are not important in the kingdom of God. Building each other up in righteousness, peace, and joy is the important thing. Eating and drinking and matters like these are not important in the kingdom of God. Building each other up in righteousness, peace, and joy is the important thing. Verse 16 through 21. Look with me. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding, and do not for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good to not eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Paul makes a beautiful and counterintuitive argument here. I mean, he could have used this very same argument to build up the strong in faith position. He, he could have said something like this. He could have said, the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking, so who cares? Eat and drink whatever you like. It doesn't matter where they stand on this, they need to grow up. But that's not what he said. Instead, what does he do? Paul, he actually chastens the strong. Instead, of, instead, he says something like this. Since eating and drinking are not important matters in the kingdom of God, which neither commend us to God nor build up the church, why not voluntarily abstain? If your freedom could cause others to sin or destroy the faith of those for whom Christ died, why not do away with it altogether? Listen, listen to how Paul encourages the church in Corinth. Because there's a similar issue. He's discussing it slightly nuanced differently but it's a very similar issue he's dealing with in in first corinthians 8 through 10 paul makes a, a similar case as romans 14 about food he says through the church in chapter 8 verse 13 if food causes my brother to stumble i will never eat meat again lest i make my brother stumble why does he say this he goes on to explain in chapter 9 that we have rights in christ because of the gospel but it is not about us In chapter 9, verse 12, Nevertheless, nevertheless, we have not made use of our right, but we endure anything rather than put anything as an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And he continues in verse 19, On the contrary, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. Did you hear what he just said? I am free from all, but I have made myself a servant of all. A slave. This is, not, this is not just a waiter who moves food from the kitchen to the table, but this is a bond servant. This is, is someone who doesn't make decisions for himself. He has a master. Yes, and in some sense, the master here, or the, the dictation is coming from the other person, but ultimately, the master is Christ. By serving others for the sake of the gospel, Paul is serving Christ. When we have disagreements in the kingdom of God, the real issue is not a lot of times about the issue. It's not about being right or claiming our rights and our privileges. It's really not even about you. The kingdom of God is about the gospel and the glory of God. Seek to love God and to love your neighbor. Principle number eight. Be humble as you live together in understanding because a person who lives according to their conscience is blessed. A person who lives according to their conscience is blessed. Verse 22 and 23. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever he or whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Paul's not Paul's not talking about faith in the way that we use faith here, okay? We often use faith in, like, the way that we talk about our belief. He's still talking about conscience, so don't get distracted by his use of faith. He's talking about conscience and convictions. But the point is this. If you are convinced by what you understand from God's word that something is sin, obey your conscience. God has gifted us with consciences for our joy, that we might walk holy and blameless lives in Christ Jesus without doubting that we are spotless in His sight because of the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, because of our union with Him, being united with Him in faith. If you are convinced that that drinking alcohol is sin, then don't drink alcohol. If you are convinced that celebrating Halloween is sin, then don't celebrate Halloween. If you're convinced that having a Bible in your bathroom is sin, then take the Bible out of the bathroom, please. This is what Paul is saying. Do what you do for the glory of God. Don't judge or impose your opinions of these matters on others either. Have a biblical awareness and consciousness to know what is written and don't go beyond what is written in 1 Corinthians 4, six. Walk in your convictions with joy. Being unashamed. God is your master. You are his servant. You have one person to please in this. Be blessed by this freedom. In our last umbrella and our last two principles here as we as we bring this to a close serve others as Christ did by number nine remembering the example of Christ who put others before him who put others first this is chapter 15 1 through 6 we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another and accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Douglas Moo, a commentator on Romans, on this passage says this, Paul is not telling the strong simply to bear with, to tolerate, or to put up with the weak in their scruples. Paul uses the same verb that he uses in Galatians 6, verse 2 and verse 5, in the the same way, urging believers to bear one another's burdens and so so fulfill the law of Christ. In this light, what Paul is exhorting the strong to do is willingly and lovingly to assume for themselves the burden of these weak believers. End quote. Bearing with the weakness of the weak means gladly helping them by refraining from doing anything that would hurt their faith. If you are struggling with these thoughts and how to put all this together, where to apply this in your life, because there are so many applications. Keep listening because Paul comes to the culmination here of this discussion in verse 3 as he points and he grounds his command in Christ's example. Listen to what he says again. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach reproach you fell on me. Think of the freedoms and privileges that Jesus laid aside in heaven in order to take on flesh and become a servant of humanity. To be God is to be completely free. Yet Jesus did not come to please himself, but what did he say? I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And he said, I came to do the will of the Father. He gave up his freedoms and his privileges to become a servant. Not a God to a king, but God to a slave. Not just a servant in general, but a servant to a particular culture and a particular place in time and in history so that we could be saved from the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins. In another quote from Andy Naselli, he says, ponder this. The son of God, who was not a Jew, he became one, left his complete freedom in heaven and became a good little Jewish boy and then a good law keeping Jewish man. The whole time he perfectly obeyed the very laws that he himself had given at Mount Sinai, even obeying laws that he knew were temporary because he designed them to be temporary, i.e. don't eat pork or worship only in Jerusalem. They, the only laws that he pushed back against were those that the Pharisees and others had added to or completely misunderstood, quote. Jesus is our primary example here in using our liberty for the good of others instead of for ourselves. Jesus laid aside his rights and his privileges so that we might be saved. Romans 15 is the soaring description of God's glorious worldwide mission of the church. It is, and who is the missionary par excellence here? It's it's Christ, Jesus, who became a servant to a people and a culture, not his own, so that they might be saved from the penalty of their own making, from the wrath of God. Paul himself follows this example in 1 Corinthians 9. Go back there just for a minute. 9:19 nine through 23. We well, don't have to turn there with me, but just, sorry. <laughs> for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all that I might win the more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, not as being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside of the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Take Hudson Taylor, a missionary to China, uh, for example, in the 1860s. For the sake of the gospel among the Chinese, he decided to do nothing to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. He was among the first modern missionaries to actually color his hair black uh, so as not to stand out on the street. In the process, he actually almost went blind to trying to dye his hair. He decided to wear Chinese clothing and, and grow a ponytail so as not to be a spectacle in which people were attracted to him and not the message of which he came to preach. He made it his aim to glorify God by becoming all things to all people so as to win some. He was willing to lay aside his preferences and his rights in order to see Christ exalted among a people who dwelt in darkness. Because of his efforts, largely due to to his faithfulness then, Christ is bearing tremendous fruit in China now. People are building on that foundation in which he laid. Nasselli continues in another quote, Jesus was the first person to practice it. The first to become a servant of a culture, not his own. Next, it was Peter's turn. You see Acts 10. And then it was Paul's turn as he became all things to all men to win them to Jesus. What we just read in 1 Corinthians 9. Now, it's your turn, Neseli says. Paul says to you in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. What's going to happen when you obey Christ and become a servant to the people inside your church who aren't like you, who make you uncomfortable? People you want to judge in your heart because they're not strict enough or people you want to roll your eyes at because they're not free enough. Or what's going to happen when you obey Christ and become a servant of people outside of your church who differ from you and who make you uncomfortable? What's going to happen? The same kind of fruitfulness that came about when Jesus and Peter and Paul laid down their lives in the same way unimaginable fruitfulness. The fruitfulness always brings happiness to the glory and praise of God. End quote. We would do well to imitate these men as they have imitated our Lord Jesus. And the last principle. Number 10. Serve others as Christ did us. We bring glory to God when we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. Verse 7 of chapter 15. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Paul ends this section in, a, in the way that he began this whole pericope in fourteen one. Welcome one another. But he adds two things here. He adds first, as Christ has welcomed you. And second, he gives a purpose for the glory of God. Jesus, for the glory of God, has made rebels who are enemies of God in our sin not just servants of the great king, not just causing us to submit to his will. He could have done that. That's certainly what the Jews thought the Messiah was coming to do, is to bring his reign on the earth and to cause people to submit. But instead, no, that's not what he did. He instead came and he made us friends. He adopted us into his household. He welcomed us to his table. He opened the door into his home, into his presence. And he's given us in himself every spiritual blessing on heaven and on earth. Access into the throne room of grace. He who knew no sin, so that he, the the righteous, took our righteousness that he might bring us to God. He became sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In all who call upon his name, he justifies, he sanctifies, he perseveres, and one day he will glorify. And it is his very spirit that he gives to dwell in those whom he has made alive. And the spirit leads us and guides us because he hasn't left us as orphans. What more could Christ give? I know that here today, we're likely not all believers in, in a room of people this size, so let me, let me speak directly to the unbelievers that are among us. We're glad that you're here. We want to welcome you. We're thankful that you've come to Heritage Baptist Church today. And to be honest, it's likely been fighting like this, the things that we're talking about today, over issues that we're talking about today, amongst believers, that possibly ha- has possibly has kept you away from coming. Kept you away from an interest in the, the church. But, but listen... See the Christ that is presented here today in this word. See see the one who laid down his life for you, who, who laid aside his rights and his privileges for you, that you might have freedom. He became a slave, that you might be saved. He was killed. Don't let the failures of others be the block of stumbling that keeps you from coming into the kingdom of God. Turn from your way and cling to Him. Hold to Christ our King. To my brothers and sisters, by the grace and mercy of God, let me speak to you again. Let us walk in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ and welcome those who differ from us. This is the main point and the main takeaway that I want for you to take home with you. The purpose statement. Let us make it our aim always to please God by sometimes laying aside our freedoms and privileges in order to please others for the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we cry out to you this morning with much need for mercy. We plead with you to sensitize our consciences to the words that we have just heard. By your spirit in us, help us and illuminate our minds to the truth that your word would affect us and transform us into the people that seeks first your kingdom, Lord, and your righteousness. Make us care more about your name being glorified and our neighbors being loved than we care about our will, our pride, and our way. Help us to lay down those things that have been stumbling blocks and offenses to our brothers and sisters and to our neighbors so that we can make it our aim to make and mature disciples of Christ Jesus. Help us to welcome one another for Christ's sake, that the world might know us by our love for one another. It's in your glorious and blessed name that we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.